you have your Bible, please turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. As we prepare to open God's word together and consider it, uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. And I was delighted when Kevin asked me to, to come and, uh, and to, to share God's word with you this morning. I can say, having spent considerable time with Kevin, uh, we always talk about what's going on in our churches and, and how we need prayer, what we're thankful for. And, and it's a pleasure for me to tell you, I'm sure you know this already, Kevin deeply loves this church. Um, and it's instructive for me as a pastor, every time I'm with him, to hear how he communicates about you and his affection for you and his affection for, for this um, broader community. So um, it's, a, it's a, an especial privilege to be here in his place because I know how he carries you on his heart every week, especially as he prepares the sermons. So you'll have to bear with me. Um, I'm like the substitute teacher, right? Um, so, um, so thanks for having me. As we turn to this section, which we just heard read from Ephesians chapter 5, that begins sort of in verse 21, definitely does not begin in verse 22. Um, what we drop into is, I think, one kind of sermonic or one sermon that starts in 5.1 and goes through 6.9. Um, so Paul has these this big idea, some of these big organizing phrases that he says at the beginning of chapter 5. And he kind of, as he goes, starts to get closer and closer to application. And then when we get to chapter 5, 22 through 6, 9, we have these three applications that he makes. But just like it would be difficult to walk in from, uh, from you know, taking care of a baby or taking a phone call or something like that, if you came in at the very end of one of Kevin's sermons and just heard a few points of application without any context, they may be somewhat helpful and and constructive, but you would, you would lose a lot of the direction of those things or the heart behind them. And so as we go into these three applications, as we do that, before we do that, we're just going to give kind of a flyover starting in 5.1 and get more of an idea of what is Paul getting at here or more appropriately, what is God getting at here? What is God calling us into? What is God proclaiming to us? as our relationship to him and as our relationship to one another, what has Christ done? Because that's really Paul's burning, burning burden is that we would understand what Christ has done for us. And then by extension, how we can walk that out with one another. So if you go back to chapter five, verse one, it starts out with Paul saying, Therefore, and he's talking about this gospel that he's proclaimed. He's, he's talking about this mystery that's been revealed, that's been withheld for all these ages, but now has been revealed in Christ, that Christ is reconciling all people to himself, whether you were near as a Jewish person or whether you were far off as a Gentile person, that he's bringing all people into one new man um, through Christ. And that's this gospel that Paul is preaching. And so he's saying, therefore, in light of that, that love that's been extended to us and that new identity, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now that is, that's a kind of a mind-blowing thing that he's just said because he's saying it to Jewish people and to Gentile people. All these people gathered together under one 
uh, banner, which is Christ and his death and resurrection, that we are all now together, beloved children in the same family. This really shatters or um, it shatters kind of this, these, this confinement that's been put around God's relationship to his people that we've been kind of trained to understand since the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God was with his people. He was near his people, but you didn't really get this sense of intimacy that God is identifying himself as our father and he's identifying us as his beloved children. It's not that it wasn't true, but it hadn't been fulfilled yet. So if you remember in the Old Testament, we see God among his people, for instance, in the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. He's there, but he's he's there. He's out there, right? Or um, all the camps of Israelites that run out like spokes from the middle when they're in the book of Numbers going through the wilderness. And there's right in the middle of all of them is this tabernacle. And sometimes you could, you know, look out your window in the morning or at night and you could see this pillar of fire above the tabernacle. And you think, oh, well, that's God is here, you know, in a special way, talking with Moses um, or accepting a sacrifice. But but he's not in my tent. Right. I mean, he's among us. He's near us. But he's 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 out there. All of his mighty works in Egypt and the desert. Hebrews summarizes it by saying, At many times and in many ways, he spoke to his people by the prophets. But now, as, as Paul is unpacking this, we see that, that it's a much more intimate kind of relationship. That now he's saying, Be imitators of God, not as, not as detached observers, not as next door neighbors to God, but 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 as beloved children of God. This is much different, this intimacy. So that's one thing that is really important as we get into this, is that this question, I think, that has to be at the forefront, do we really believe, do we really believe that Christ has made us to be God's children? Do, we, do you really believe in your own kind of um, self-assessment or the way that you navigate do you believe that God looks upon you as a father looks upon a child, just loves you, is looking for ways to bless you, is looking for ways to help you, is happy when you ask for help? What father here isn't happy when, when a child comes to you with some practical thing that you can do to help? Isn't that delightful? Don't we want that, moms? Don't you want that? I've got this problem. Can you help me with it? Man, it gets even sweeter when they become teenagers, right? Like, wow, you still need me? You still love me? I mean, our daughter, we just moved her into college uh, last week, this week, on Wednesday. And, and she knew that we were going to be here, and she's at JNU. And so she wanted us to come and take her to lunch. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yes, we'll be there. Um, and this will be a short sermon, right? <laughs> God... God's calling you because of Christ. He's calling you that beloved child. You're not a nuisance to him. He hasn't reluctantly accepted you, even though you're totally jacked up. Okay, but since Jesus did some stuff, I guess I'll call them a child, but I'm going to make them live, you know, above the, the detached garage. You are to God this beloved child. 
He wants you to draw near to him. He wants you to feel his embrace. He wants you to come to him and bring your requests to him. So that's really important because as we move into these applications, we need to know that about ourselves if we're going to apply what he's going to say. But we also need to know that about each other. Do I really believe not only that I'm a beloved child of God, do I believe that my wife is a beloved child of God? When I look at her behind her, do I see Christ as her father embracing her? That's so important. And does she see me that way? Even though I have my flaws and I'm messed up and I'm a work in progress, does she see Christ behind me embracing me? Fathers and children and, and, and bosses and employees, all of this, it's, it's all hanging on that understanding. Are we all, regardless of gender or status, are we all beloved children? If we get that, well, then we start, then we're right on the cusp of brilliantly displaying this mystery and proclaiming it just by the way we love each other, such that Christ, his, his prayer starts to get fulfilled as they see the love, as the world sees the love that they have for each other, this, this specific kind of love that he's going to talk about, they'll know that you sent me. They'll know that there's something different going on in the world. So that's, the, that's kind of the foundation for this application that he's going to make. That's, that's the wheelhouse of this sermon, Paul's sermon, beginning in 5.1. And he goes on to add these... Um, organizing statements these other ones so there's that one the one where he says therefore be imitators of god as beloved children and there's another one and walk in love as christ loved us and gave himself up for us so that's really important too see he's just going to be unpacking that in verse 21 walking in love the same kind of love that christ used on us the same kind of love that christ displays toward us This kind of giving oneself up for another person kind of love. That's what he's telling us to walk in. He goes on in verse 15, if you look, uh, just real quick, I'm not going to unpack this, but, but he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so you see how he's using these general statements. And that's a frustrating thing. If that's all he's going to say to me, that's a little frustrating and scary because he's just saying, um, uh, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. How am I supposed to do that? Right? So golly, I hope he gets to some application and sure enough he does. And that's what we're going to look at. Trust me, we're getting there. Um, so he goes in, in in verse 17. That's really where, or verse 18, I'm sorry. That's where the, this passage starts. The application starts here. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he names four things. So if getting drunk with wine leads to debauchery, which is its own thing, then being filled with the Spirit is going to lead to these four other things, kind of symmetrically opposite things. And he says, first, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Second, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Third, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
and fourth, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the one that, that he's going to unpack that fourth one, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, he's going to then unpack it with these three different contexts. But first, we have to understand the essence of what he's saying here is, it's like he said so many times in his prayers, um, the prayer in chapter one, the prayer in chapter three, he's calling on super, something supernatural to take hold of us that we might do something different. In chapter one, he wants the supernatural power to come and lay hold of us so that we would know three things about God, right? The hope of our calling and um, the, the, the inheritance of God and the saints and the power, all that stuff. So here he's doing this again. He's saying, don't become drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Don't come under the sway of wine, which when you're under the sway and under the control of wine, it's going to lead to these kinds of things naturally, but instead, be filled with the Spirit, which when you're filled with the Spirit and under the sway of the Spirit and under the power of the Spirit and the animation of the Spirit, it's going to lead to these four things that aren't going to happen naturally. They're only going to happen as we submit ourselves to the infilling power and animation of the Spirit, as we yield ourselves openly and say, I'm your workmanship. Um, created in Christ to do things. Now, help me, empower me, give me vision and wisdom to know what those things are and empower me to do them. Help me to care that I'm your disciple. Help me to care that, that you've given me these responsibilities, right? Help me to see beyond myself. Fill me with your spirit so that I can do what's beyond my natural tendency, which if you go through these things, my natural tendency is not to speak with one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's to crack jokes. I mean, if I'm just hanging out with people, I don't care about them as much as I care about laughing and cracking jokes. And if that's what they need in the moment, well, that's lucky. That's lucky for all of us. But if it's not, then I'm going to fail to live up to this. If I'm not filled with the Spirit, if I'm not under the sway of the Spirit, I miss opportunities left and right all the time. Ask my wife and kids. Ask Kevin. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always for everything to God. Is that your natural tendency? Not mine. Uh, without the Lord's help, I'm not going to be doing that. I'm going to be anxious I might be complaining, um, but, but, but I'm not going to be giving thanks for everything. But if I'm filled with the Spirit, if, I'm, if he's animating me to see beyond myself and to see broadly what he's done for me and that he's preparing a place for me, and then to see what the opportunities are around me to bring his joy to other people and to bring his life to other people, then I'm thankful. I, I walk in this atmosphere of thanksgiving and excitement and anticipation for what God is doing, see? But without the, the Spirit filling me, I don't. And the fourth one, again, which he's going to unpack, this is the important one. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's love. That's what he said before in 5.1, walk in love. Be imitators of God, walking in love. What kind of love? This kind of love. This kind of self-emptying love. That's what he's calling us to do. Every single one of us. Informed by the fact that Christ is behind each of us. As, as our father and we're each his beloved child. So we submit to one another. Not because 
there's a, a superiority or not because of some pecking order of society or economics or family order. We submit to one each other, another knowing that, that Christ is behind each one of us. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Not out of reverence for the human being. Out of reverence for who this human being is because of Christ. Submit to that person out of reverence for him. And then he unpacks it in these three primary institutions, these three primary contexts in which we all live. And we've seen, as we heard read, that it's wives and husbands submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Children and parents submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And bondservants and masters submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You'll notice and, and, you know, this is a tricky passage because of verse 22, how it starts. Wives, submit to your husbands. The way that Paul begins this argument is a stumbling block in our culture. I mean, in college classes, I heard things said like, you know, Paul is this raging, uh, you know, misogynist. That's so not true. I mean, what he does is he takes the standing order of the ancient Near East which was extremely misogynistic and blows it up. I mean, he destroys it. And, and the same, if you look through all of these, the, the pattern for all of these is, yes, there are roles and there are functions, but every single person, regardless of your place, we all are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's not endorsing this kind of abusive, neglectful um, brandishing of power. So you'll notice here, verse 22 through 24, he's talking to wives and he's saying that they should submit to their own husbands just as the church submits to Christ. So he's recognizing this order, that, that there is this order, yet he's, he's then going to spend 25, verse 25 through the end, through 33, Essentially, and you'll notice even symmetrically how much time he spends on wives compared to husbands in light of the context into which he's speaking, that he's, he's taking great pains to undo this abusive way that things normally are with regard to order and addressing those who are historically in power by calling them to love your wives. Again, what does that word mean? It doesn't mean just affection, show them affection. It means this submission. It means this self-emptying, this self-sacrifice. And that's not me. That's go back to 5.1. That's why we did that. This is what the scripture says. This is how Paul defines it. To walk in love just as Christ loved us and laid himself down for us. That's, how, that's what love is. As Christ loved the church, and just in case we didn't get it the first time, he's going to do it again. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So wives are called to submit to husbands. Are not husbands then called, by definition of what this love means, this self-emptying, sacrificial love, to yield themselves to their wives, to seek the good of their wives, just as the wives are called to seek the good of their husbands. That's the pattern that he runs through for each one of these three contexts. Children and parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. 
But then he's going to speak to fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So here you again have this deference that he's laying on fathers. You can't just bark orders at people. These children don't exist to do your bidding and to just submit to you blindly. Um, that's not what God's calling us to do. He's, he's informing us to not uh, exasperate them, to make sure that the expectations are clear and that they can accomplish what we're asking them to do and, and being trained, trained and instructed to do it. But also he's, he's calling us to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, not the fear and admonition of us. There's a big difference there, man. And when I'm lazy and when I'm tired and I just want things a certain way, that's when I, this goes out the window, right? I don't care if you're being raised in the Lord right now. I need you to be quiet. I need you to stop fighting. Um, and I'm not saying that there's not overlap there, but I'm just saying the spirit of my heart in parenting is not naturally to see Christ behind each of my children enfolding them and saying, careful, this is my kid. I love this person. This is a human being just like you are, who has been rescued by me and engrafted into me. So be careful. You're on holy ground, dad. This is not your kid. First and foremost, it's my kid. I don't see it that way when I'm, when I'm not being animated by the spirit, when I'm just operating in the norm of, or my natural tendency to think of myself as something rather than being filled by the spirit and seeing Christ as everything. He goes on with bond servants and masters, same thing, same pattern. First, he starts with the one who's um, kind of typically the one who's the subordinate in the relationship or the one who's there serving the one uh, structurally above. So he starts with bond servants, calling them to obey with fear and trembling, with awe, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service. So serve your, serve your boss the way that you would serve Christ directly. And he keeps saying this, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. And if, if your boss has told you to do, to move that pile of wood from that side of the parking lot to that side of the parking lot, then you're going to do that as if God himself has asked you to do that. And if Christ himself is watching over you as you do it, and you're going to do it with your whole heart, whether your human boss is watching or not. So he's infusing this, this love and submission into um, the vision of those of us who are employees. But then he talks to the bosses. Masters, do the same to them. Have the same mindset as was just laid on the servant. This is totally radical. Just like he did with parents and just like he did with husbands, he's going to lay the same ethic on the one who's in power and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. So there you see this, first of all, knowledge that Christ is giving you your identity and the same Christ is giving them their identity. And there's really in this whole equation, only one master with a capital M and there is no partiality with him. He doesn't care. 
He doesn't care what your rank is. He doesn't care what your role or function is. To him, he created all these people and he's redeemed all these people and he's embracing all these people. And yes, the world has structures and orders and institutions, but he's saying every human being in this, these institutions is equal in the sight of God and he's the only master. I think for us, by way of application, you know, God has given each of us this instruction and we all find ourselves in at least one of these roles. We probably all find ourselves in three of these roles. And I believe what God is calling us to do in all these different contexts is he's calling us to, to use these broad statements that Paul makes at the beginning of the the chapter and try to work them into our relationships to filter through our roles as husbands and wives and to say, do I see my wife that way? Is that how I view her? Is that how I view myself first? Because if I'm not loved, it's going to be hard for me to love other people. I'm going to be a bottomless pit who's always needing affection and affirmation. And if I'm not loved, I can't then in turn love someone else. I'm, I'm on quicksand myself. So am I a beloved child? And then is my wife a beloved child? And man, if she is, if Christ is there, then I, I want to yield to her. I want to serve her because what wouldn't I do when my mind is right, when I'm filled with the spirit and not filled with Keith, when my mind is right, and my heart is right, what would I not do for Christ who's done all this for me? I would love him because he first loved me. And, and by extension, I would love my wife out of reverence for him, right? So how do I do that? And that doesn't mean, I think the, the temptation here might be just a quick box check, right? Well, I work hard and I provide. And so I do these things that I know are loving. And so, yes, I'm doing that. Or I serve, I serve and I do this and I do that. And I, so yes, I'm doing that. Well, maybe, but am I just serving then on my own terms? Am I seeing myself behind my wife and doing the things I think she, I think I would want, you know what I mean? Or am I seeing her as a, as a person and seeking to listen and understand and lay myself down for her? So we can run these, this image of Christ behind each of us, including ourselves, through the lens of each of these three contexts and pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to show forth this kind of love that Christ was praying for right before he was betrayed. Lord, let them love each other this way. Everywhere that they are, let their homes have this aroma that comes only when, when regardless of where you are in the order, everyone is submitting to the other. And, and there's just this love because Christ is in the middle of it. And he becomes visible as we do this. We proclaim this mystery as we love each other. And wow, look at how those parents care for those children. And those children genuinely love those parents, not out of fear because daddy's going to get mad, but there's just this sweetness to how they love each other and how they yield themselves to one another. And look at how they work. As we do this, we fulfill what Christ was pleading with the father to do. Let them love each other this way 
the way I'm going to love them so that the world will know that you sent me. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.